Father, speak to us by your Spirit, uh, for your servants are listening. We want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we um, are continuing our little initial series through Revelation. We're going through the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and we did a bit of an introductory um, overview sermon last week, and so we're jumping into the first um, letter here to the church at Ephesus, and uh, Ephesus uh, has a lot to be commended for, actually, as a church. They are diligent in their doctrines. You can see in this text that they care about the purity of doctrine in their church. They have perseverance in a culture of growing persecution. And I think if they were a church today, because we like to um, box churches into labels and we like to caricature them, I think they um, at Ephesus would be kind of the, the sort of church that would do like three hour long Bible studies and um, host theological debates for the fun of it. Um, certainly makes my heart warm thinking of that. I would absolutely love that if anyone wants to. I'm all for it. They're passionate about holding uh, firm to true Christian teachings. I wonder if you've sort of come across churches like that now. Um, very uh, commendable attributes of a church, but there's something a bit off in the church at Ephesus. So they don't actually spread an aroma of love to those around them. They kind of seem a bit cold to those outside. So Jesus, he commends the church at Ephesus for this, but he actually gives a serious rebuke here. And it is strong enough to actually warn them that if they do not repent of this, he will take away their lampstand, which is to say they will no longer be a church. So this is a very serious rebuke. Now, I want to look firstly at what characterizes the Ephesian church just a bit deeper. So if we look firstly at the commendations in verses 2 to 3, Jesus tells them that he knows about their works, their toil, and their patient endurance. He gives those three marks. He commends them because they cannot bear with those who are evil. They've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and they're enduring patiently and bearing up for Jesus' name sake. And it's really interesting to look at those three marks that Jesus gives there in verse 2. Works, toil, and patient endurance. These themes pop up again and again through Scripture. So these three themes are something that Paul commends the church of Thessalonica for in his letter to them. In his first letter, uh, he commends them for their work of faith their labor of love, which is the same word for toil, so their toil of love and their endurance of hope. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, I've heard uh, about your work of faith, your labor of love and your endurance of hope. This is what should uh, mark a church. Works, toil and patient endurance. One of the most significant uses of these three marks actually are where Jesus uses them in Matthew 25, which is right before he actually goes to the cross Matthew 24, he's just given the Olivet Discourse. He's spoken about everything that will happen uh, pretty much up until he returns a second time. So he's given this whole um, theme of what will happen right before he returns. And then in Matthew 25, this is right before he leaves his disciples. And he knows he's going to the cross. And he gives uh, three particular parables 
that all detail these three marks. So he gives the parable of the ten virgins, which is where you have five faithful virgins who have enough oil, they have endurance to last, and then there are five foolish virgins who do not have sufficient oil, they don't have endurance. And what happens, where Jesus says, is that uh, these foolish virgins go off to get oil and while they're away, Jesus comes and the ones who had oil meet their bridegroom. They had endurance. The second parable is the parable of the bags of gold, which is where a master gives three specific amounts of talents or money to three servants. And two of them, they steward or they toil with this, these talents. They invest them. They actually double them and they get commended by the master. But one of them chooses not to. He doesn't do anything with it. He just buries it. And the master comes back and says, you wicked servant. And it's a sign of actually being cast out. And then finally, perhaps the scariest one of all, the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is where Jesus actually describes how it will be when he returns and he will separate the sheep, which is his people, the Christians, from the goats. And the way he chooses to distinguish between the sheep and the goats is by their works. So he says to the sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they say to him, well, when did we do that? And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. And then he says to the goats, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And then they say, well, what's the deal, Jesus? We didn't see you. If we saw you, like I would have fed you. I would have clothed you. And Jesus says, Whatever you didn't do to the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do to me. And now you'll be cast out. So the works weren't what saved them, but they were what was the fruit of their salvation. They demonstrated their faith, just like James says. And so we have in this section in Matthew 25, works, toil and endurance. This is what Jesus shares to his disciples right before he leaves. I mean, they had uh, the, the Ephesian church are commended for this and they had like the trinity of evidence that, that's, that a church is faithful, works, toil and endurance. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to keep them on the path toward Christ. So what's the issue? This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. In, in verse 4, Jesus rebukes them because they have abandoned the love they had at first. So he calls out the church at Ephesus because they have abandoned their love. They have misprioritized what it means to walk faithfully before Christ. And as I said, this was serious enough that if they didn't change, if they didn't recover this love, then Christ would remove their lampstand. He would actually take his hand off of them and hand them over. So what clues can we get? from scripture about the church at Ephesus that would give us an insight into the kind of love they had at first. Uh, if you have your Bibles and turn to Acts 19, Acts 19 is uh, where we have the earliest account of the Ephesian church. It's an amazing story. It's one of um, Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, he finally gets into um, the city of Ephesus and uh, really quickly, these believers demonstrate a powerful love and commitment. So from verse 11, we, we read about how 
extraordinary miracles were being done by the apostles. I mean, so much so that Paul's handkerchief was taken, his snotty handkerchief was taken and people were healed. Evil spirits were cast out by his handkerchief. God was doing extraordinary things there and people started to try and replicate that. And so there's a particular story of these seven sons of a Jewish high priest who tried to cast out an evil spirit, but they couldn't. And the evil spirit says to them, well, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the evil spirit overpowers them and uh, somehow strips them of their clothes and they run away naked, humiliated. And from verse 17 in Acts 19, it says after this, that fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was magnified, made great. And then, and this is, this is uh, one of the best uh, scenes we see into powerful love demonstrated by believers. And this happened for the church at Ephesus in verse 18. Uh, it details how many of the new believers came forward in repentance and confessed their wickedness for taking part in demonic practices of sorcery and magical incantations. This was very common in the city of Ephesus. People would make a lot of money off of writing basically spells and uh, magic was very prominent there. Uh, that was for a lot of people their livelihood. And these people had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they had been gripped by it. And then it says here that they burned, they brought all of their books with their magic spells that were worth a lot of money, 50,000 pieces of silver worth, and they burned them all. Now in today's money, that's $10 million worth. It would be like someone taking $10 million of their possessions that was their old livelihood and they've realized that is not the way of Christ, I'm gonna burn it to demonstrate my commitment to Jesus. This is one of the best examples of the fear of God gripping a people and then the outworking of that love for God and people willingly giving up their materialistic possessions because they have found true satisfaction in God Almighty. Totally consistent with what Paul says in Philippians 3 where he, he says, I was such a prominent Jew, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, I had a great life, but you know what? I consider that all garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's worthless in, com in comparison to actually following Christ. And this is the kind of love for God which magnifies his worth. It's like the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13, where a farmer finds treasure in a field and he then goes and sells everything. And it says in his joy, he sells everything he has to purchase that treasure, to purchase the field, because it's so worth it. It's like if my wife was overseas, let's say she had spent uh, three or four months overseas and I hadn't seen her for a long time. And then I found out that she was coming uh, back home um, tomorrow night, but I had a movie booked at Limelight Cinemas, $9.90 tickets, and I had a movie pre-planned to go down there. And I thought, I actually really want to see this movie. I'll see Jasmine another day. It's only a day, don't worry about it. Now, of course, that doesn't really show much value to my wife, does it? That uh, I'm willing, it's been so long since I've seen her, and you know what, I'd pretty rather go see the movie than see her face then. 
Now, if I chose to forego that $9.90 movie to go to the airport, that's a step up, but it's not exactly, no one's gonna commend me for that. Well done, you didn't go to the movie to go see your wife. But what if I had a uh, business appointment that was gonna secure me $10 million, a one-off chance, and it was when my wife was coming home and I said, you know what, I can't wait a moment longer to see my wife. And I really don't care about this. And I know it seems crazy, but I wanna be there at the gate when she gets off the plane just so I can see her. Now, a lot of people would say that's crazy. Dude, just wait the extra day, get the $10 million, buy her a gift and then see her. But that's precisely the kind of crazy love that the Ephesians showed i'm sure people were saying hey don't burn the books that's worth so much money just sell them and give them to the church but no it was a powerful act of devotion and love for god and that is precisely the love that the ephesians first had and something has actually caused them to lose that this love from the ephesians which expressed itself in radical selflessness, it clearly continued because Paul, when writing to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians, he commends them in the first chapter in verse 15, because he says, I have heard of your love for God. Sorry, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So he's still saying, I have heard, and this would have been after this event in Acts 19, I'm still hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. It's still evident. And when Paul wrote the letter of uh, Ephesians, that would have been several decades before the book of Revelation, which we're now reading through now. So in that time, something has happened where they have abandoned that kind of love. So this is what happened to the Ephesian church. And unfortunately, we don't actually have much record of the Ephesian church after the first century. By all accounts, it seems like from the second century, they are gone. They are dead. They didn't recover that love. We have no evidence of the Ephesian church from the second century AD. So unfortunately, it seems like they, they actually didn't heed that words. This is a very weighty passage for us to reflect upon right now. So if we, in light of that, if we examine ourselves, both individually, but more importantly, collectively as a church community, how can we determine whether we have abandoned our first love? There are three particular warning signs that I want us to be aware of today. And I want us to think of them both individually, but as I said, more importantly, collectively, because this was written to a church community. And I know we live in an individualistic culture and the church is made up of individuals, but really God is primarily talking to a group of people. So the first warning for some people who may uh, be in danger of abandoning their first love, when we think of the word of God, you may study God's word for superiority rather than humble devotion. There is a real danger for anyone who studies God's word primarily just to know more information about God, about theology. And I want to be clear that this is not a false dichotomy of knowledge versus spirituality or knowledge versus love. That's a, a, a fake um, dichotomy. Knowledge is a necessary part of Christianity, but we want to know God in the same way that Paul wanted to know when he said, I want to know the uh, 
power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I want to know Christ in every single way I can. I want to know him deeply and intimately. And that's the kind of knowledge that we want. But there is a particular path of knowledge, which is one of superiority over others. It's like you become so focused upon learning the doctrine itself rather than learning about the Christ, which the doctrine illuminates, which was the problem of the Pharisees when Jesus said to them, you people search the scriptures daily because in them you think you have life, but you don't realize that these very scriptures point to me. And that's the point of our path of knowledge. And so I think a few ways that uh, if this is present in your life, it might be a warning sign for you, is if people no longer ask you questions about the Bible. Maybe you're a bit unpleasant to be around. Maybe once people were interested in talking, but now you notice no one actually likes to bring up scripture with you. And, And as I was writing this, I was quite convicted in my own heart because I believe this has happened to me. You're actually not approachable because you handle scripture from a place of superiority rather than humility. One theologian once said, scripture is to be handled with a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. And that's because scripture is delicate. And so you have a Uh, um, amount of grace that goes with handling scripture and so maybe that has been um, removed from your life and no one actually wants to ask you any questions about the Bible anymore because well it's an unpleasant experience and secondly uh, a warning sign is that you are not teachable from others and I think um, this isn't I think everyone is teachable if they realize that the person that they are learning from is superior to them. So even the proudest person can be teachable if they just accept, wow, this person is way wiser than I am, so I'm gonna learn from them. So that's not what I'm talking about. There is a teachability that I think comes with humility where you put yourself in a place of, in a posture of learning from anyone, whether they be young in the faith, whether they be a Christian or not a Christian, you're actually in that place of wanting to learn And again, and I just confess, there have been times where I have approached a situation and I've made an assumption that I'm not going to be able to learn from this person. They're too young. I have nothing to learn. And I've probably missed out on really valuable insights because I haven't been in a place of learning. I haven't had a teachable spirit. And so that was a good warning sign for me. Maybe this is present in your life. And the first place, if it is, the first place to correct this is to saturate your time in the word with prayer. Martin Luther says this, We cannot attain to the understanding of scripture either by study or by the intellect. So he's saying we we can't truly understand scripture simply by intellect or uh, simply by studying it as a means of getting knowledge you won't actually grasp scripture. He says, your first duty is to begin by prayer. Entreat the Lord to grant you of his great mercy, the true understanding of his word. So he's saying, entreat the Lord, come to the word of God and ask, open my eyes that I may see wonders in your word. Help me, help me, I wanna know you lord through your word entreat god so ask him saturate your time 
in the word with prayer because you cannot truly pray to a holy God. You can't actually do it. You can't pray to a holy God without humility. You're either doing it wrong or God will humble you himself because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so this is why as a community, when we were still in Adelaide with just the five of us, we uh, had five core values. And one of the values is valuing the place of word and prayer as central to our gathering. And we didn't just say that because it sounds like a Christian thing to do. We did it because we want prayer along with the word to be central to our gathering so that for us as a community, we want to prioritize prayer as the means by which God rightly illuminates himself to us. We want to prioritize prayer because it will keep us in a place of humility because you cannot pray to a holy God without staying humble in your posture. And therefore, you are in a place of hum humility, of humble devotion rather than superiority. The second warning is if your spiritual life feels like a cold routine. I wonder if you just um, ask yourself now, is there a warmth in my spiritual life? Is there an actual warmth? Do you desire moments of prayer? Is there a yearning within you to commune with God and his people? Kind of like we went over at the start of this meeting in Psalm 27, 4. Is there that kind of heart within you? And I know that there'll be moments of coldness and sort of wilderness moments in our life, but is there some sort of true north that you come to that desires nothing more than to just dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life? Because see, the Ephesian church, they still looked like a church. They worked, they toiled, they had endurance. Christ commends them for these things. They are good things, but they had abandoned their love. And so these good things simply became a cold routine without a warm spiritual life saturated in God's unfailing love. And if you've been a Christian long enough, then you know, man, you can go through the motions. You can just go on autopilot and you can look like a Christian. But true life in the spirit is not a cold routine. True life in the spirit births within us a yearning for more, for more of God, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so for us as a church, a question for us to ask is, do we as a community have a spiritual rhythm that is warm and lively or is it just a cold routine? Because I want us, my prayer is that we would be a community that demonstrates a keen desire to actually commune with the Lord. Because if we don't have that, then I don't think we've got a hope. We need to have a desire to commune with Christ and his body. And so we need to have a weekly rhythm that is warm and lively rather than just a cold routine. I think one way that we can apply this to our gathering, to our community is that we need to have a culture of sharing with others. I believe every voice needs to be heard. I definitely do not think that my voice should be the only voice being heard. I think just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The beautiful thing about God's body is that every voice can be heard and every voice can be used to edify the body. And so I think that that is the way that we can have a warm and lively spiritual routine is if we have a culture of sharing. So I encourage you 
share with others in this community, share about a scripture that you've been reading, share about a challenge, share about a terrible time that you've had. We had the dog barking last night, all night, it was terrible. And I'll share with someone more about it later because I actually feel like it brought a lot of bitterness within me and I really don't want that. Now, thirdly, the last warning here is if you are stingy with your time and resources. As we went over before that we saw in Acts 19, when the Ephesian church first loved God, they did not hold tightly to their resources. They actually held so loosely that they were willing to give up $10 million worth in today's money of their resources because they'd found true worth in Christ. And this is the natural overflow of God's love within us. It is self-giving. It doesn't hold tightly to time and resources. And now I think it's okay to recognize your limitations. Like Jesus needed to spend a lot of time alone in prayer. And so much more so will you. You can't be constantly giving. You do need to actually receive from the Lord and spend time alone. But if we are saying no to giving of our time and resources because we'd rather play games at home or if we don't really want to drive like 10 minutes out of our way, which I know is like halfway across Canberra, but still if you, you don't want to actually drive that extra bit because you're being quite stingy with your time and resources, then maybe that demonstrates that you're not actually grounded in the self-giving love of God who gave of himself. And so we as a community need to be generous with our time in serving those around us. And two ways that we can do this, and I, I pray as a part of our church, a regular part, is that we actually give of our time and resources and we have partnerships with our brothers and sisters in Christ globally. We are not simply about ourselves and we're, we're not simply about City Reach. We're not even about the Western church. We're about our brothers and sisters in Christ globally. And so we want to give of our resources because we have been uh, given much in this affluent world in this part of the world and so to whom much is given much will be expected and so we want to give and partner with brothers and sisters in Christ like in Uganda um, some I have some uh, brother pastors in India that would be in great need of resources and I would love for us to actually be partnering financially with them to, to serve them so that we would not be stingy with our time and resources and secondly we want to obviously have this culture in the community around us. We want to be a community uh, who gives of themselves to those around us. Love for God is always tied to love for neighbor. Your love for God will then, be, will then cause an overflow of love for those around us. So I just want to finish now with three very quick uh, solutions to these issues. If these warning signs come up, and I think these are three ways that we can prevent that or uh, realign ourselves back to the love of God. And that is we need to reflect upon our spiritual location. We need to remember the place of grace and we need to respond in faithful obedience. Reflect, remember and respond. So firstly, we reflect upon our location. We need to examine ourselves like Paul called the Corinthian church to in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. 
Examine your spiritual location. Are you in the faith? This is a command we are actually given. The Christian life is always lived in contemplative reflection and hopeful expectation. That's kind of the posture. Contemplative reflection and hopeful expectation. Because if we don't reflect upon our spiritual location, it'll kind of be like when you're at the beach and you are not actually aware of your surroundings you're busy frolicking in the water having a great time and 10 minutes later you've actually been caught in a very gentle rip that has taken you about 500 meters down the beach and you can't even see the flags anymore and that's what it's like for us if we don't actually regularly reflect upon our spiritual location so we need practices of reflection in our life and i think one of the best ways that uh, we usually don't do so well in our culture, one of the best ways to do this is to regularly ask yourself questions. Whether you do that with others or individually, ask yourself questions. What has God been speaking to me about through his word and through my circumstances? And reflecting upon that, how have I shown grace toward others in my lives? I know last night, I was not really showing grace. As soon as that dog was barking, I wanted to go over to the house and knock on the door at like one o'clock in the morning. And I really didn't care. I didn't do it. But I was not exactly showing grace. My initial reaction was to uh, bang on their door and say, what are you doing? Please quiet your dog. And I know that's a, a small thing, but if, if there's a pattern of that in my life, then I realize... Uh, I'm actually probably a bit further away than I need to be from that position of remembering the grace of God. And so however you choose to do it, make sure you have some practice of reflection in your life. Secondly, remember the place of grace. We get amnesia as Christians. We forget that we were dead. We forget that we were in the slimy pit of mud and mire. We forget how fallen we actually were and I'm convinced this was an issue for the Ephesian church because in the second chapter of the, the letter to the Ephesians Paul digs into this very deeply and he reminds them how fallen they were he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit of which is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So that's what he's saying. You were all part of the, the sons of disobedience. He says, you were by nature children of wrath. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers. And he just goes on and on about this. But then he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so don't forget, remember that place of grace. We have to remember that place. And that's why we don't ever move on from the gospel. We don't graduate from the gospel. The gospel is a regular it's, it's always good news. It always remains prominent news to us because the gospel reminds us we were dead in our sins. The gospel remind us, reminds us that we don't actually deserve this. The cross of Christ reminds us both how wretched and undeserving 
we are because for the perfect faultless son of God to have to suffer such an excruciating death as that we must have offended God in a horrific way for that to happen but the cross also reminds us what kind of love our father has that he was willing to allow his son to go through that very excruciating death and suffer unimaginable pain in order to bring us in in order to bring us in to actually that place at the foot of the cross where as far as the east is from the west our transgressions have been removed from us and as we remember that love we stay as we regularly remind ourselves of that love we stay in that place of grace and lastly we respond in faithful obedience so we need to reflect upon our spiritual location we need to remember the place of grace and we need to respond in faithful obedience so we need to hear this call from jesus to the obedience of the faith and we should actually hear it with trembling because Jesus warns the church in the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation 2. He warns them, if not, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a severe warning. Obedience is always tied to love. That's why Jesus says in John 14 verse 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments it's a, a matter of fact statement if you love me you will keep my commandments and the ephesian church while they stayed obedient to to god's call for doctrinal diligence and and that is commendable that's good while they did that they neglected obedience to the call to love God with everything they have and to love their neighbor as their self. And this affected their witness in the world. And so how might we respond to this in obedience? Well, we as a church community are obviously meeting under a pergola in a house, which is, I think, fantastic. But as you can see, we're kind of already running out of room a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm trusting that the Lord will provide, but we're kind of actively thinking about a public spot in the future that we could meet. And I think a way that we can actually respond in obedience to this call to demonstrate love is that we look for a public place to meet somewhere that we can rent, where we can actively have a witness in the community to non-Christians. So we've spoken about scout halls or something like that. And I think, wouldn't that be great if we can actually um, apply this obedience to meet in a place where we will have a regular witness to those around us, where we will be actively involved and the worship of Christ will extend into those areas. And secondly, a way that we can apply and respond in obedience is that we keep practices of spiritual disciplines as a community. This is how we always remind each other of God's love for us and how we stir one another on for love and good work. So we, we meet uh, obviously on Sundays at, at 10 a.m. but we also meet at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights to pray and I would love just spontaneous uh, moments of, of prayer, of, of prayer catch-ups or, or whatever, but to have a culture of uh, practices of spiritual discipline so that we are reminding ourselves of this. 
So we're reminding each other of God's love and we actually keep ourselves in that warm and lively spiritual routine. But we have to get the order of this right because obedience will always flow out of a heart that is enraptured with God. Obedience will always flow when you have sat at the foot of the cross and you've just beheld the the glory of God and the his love for his people and obedience will flow out of that. And so that's why we always reflect upon our location. We remember the place of grace. We remember the gospel. And this is how we keep ourselves in the love of God.